0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're saying goodbye to the lazy days of summer. And hello to the routine of workaday Washington with a show we're calling 9 to 5. Over the next hour, we'll talk with all sorts of folks about how they make their daily bread, including a woman in DC whose job involves going undercover and busting stores that don't charge that nickel fee for your plastic bag.
1: I have had some funny instances where a cashier has said, you know, I should be charging you five cents, but it's okay. Uh, It's on
0: me today. We'll also learn why some cops in the city say they were forced to retire from the jobs they loved.
2: I go in and they tell me, your job is over. I said,
0: what? And talk about daily bread, we'll meet a baker who brought American desserts to the Middle East and back again
3: people would come in and be like, what's red velvet? That's so interesting.
0: But we'll kick off today's show by talking not so much about 9 to 5, but maybe 5 to 9 or 3 to 1?
4: Some people come to work at 3 in the afternoon here. And then they stay until, like, 1 in the morning sometimes.
0: Maybe even 7 to 3.
4: And then there's another guy comes in at 7 o'clock in the morning and leaves at 3 because he's got a kid he's got to get back home.
0: Really, the possibilities are endless.
4: So the space really works. It's very flexible for everybody.
0: The space Mike Englert's talking about is Affinity Lab, which opened in Adams Morgan in 2001 before moving to U Street Northwest. Affinity Lab is the longest-running space in D.C. dedicated to co-working. That is, a bunch of people sharing a space to get the job done. Mike and his wife have been at the lab for more than four years, running the branding and design company she founded in her home office.
4: She was working in the basement apartment where we lived uh, over by 17th and U. And living and working in a basement apartment, living in one's hard enough. Living and working in one is suicidal almost.
0: <laughs> Indeed, Mike says, co-working offers a welcome alternative to, say, your living room or the local Starbucks. And while some co-working spaces focus on a particular industry, Affinity Lab's 40-some members are pretty diverse.
4: There's nonprofits. there's businesses, there's been political campaigns run out of this office. And it can even be like a grad student. Like we had a Ph.D. student in here for a few months who was just working on his Ph.D., but he wanted to get out of his house and just be somewhere productive where other people were working on something.
0: And former Affinity Lab CEO Philippe Chitrit is proud of everyone's productivity at the lab, not to mention their longevity.
5: We've had probably a little over 300 businesses come through the lab, and 80% of them are still in business today.
0: As opposed to the 80% of businesses the U.S. Small Business Administration says fail within their first five years. Philippe says a key to success is the open layout of the 5,000-square-foot
5: space. We're all in it together. We can all see each other. So if you also look at the design, like all the desks are on the outside. So no one has a back to each other. Everyone's just looking at each other and can see each other. Because that's how the magic happens.
0: Magic, as in exchanging ideas, trading services, or...
3: So far since our inception, we've had a couple of companies merge that are already in the building.
0: Making connections.
3: And I think I've seen more business connections and networking done over the keg that we have on the third floor than the actual conference rooms, which is the way I like to see it. I mean, that's that's just awesome.
0: Carl Pierre is the city lead for the international company WeWork. WeWork has several D.C. locations, including the third and fourth floors of the Wonder Bread Factory in Shaw. And the local beer is just one of many amenities. You've got 24-7 access, Wi-Fi, printing, conference rooms, outdoor patios, plus fruit-infused water and other uh, perks.
3: This is a coffee table that converts into an arcade table. Um, and basically
0: has every single old-school arcade game from Pac-Man to Donkey Kong to Space Invaders. WeWork also offers an insurance plan as well as discounts to neighborhood gyms. But if Affinity Lab is a big open space, WeWork is a sleek, chic rabbit warren of glass-walled offices. So some people actually have their logos on their glass doors. We actually provide that service for free.
3: Um, it provides a sense of identity to each office and plus it's easier for guests and other members of the space to find you.
0: And one of the members I find is Kendrick Jackson, managing partner of State of Affairs, a consulting business for men's... Clothes, coffee, and cocktails. Kendrick actually got his first taste of co-working at Affinity Lab.
2: The amenities that they had were just simple. Um, I learned how to code there for free. So it was, it was cool. It was like being in grad school there and it helped me out a lot. So if that's
0: grad school, what is New
2: I mean, we worked work. I mean, it's, it's like when you leave grad school, you need to start.
0: Hello.
6: Hi.
7: How are you doing? Adam. Rebecca. But
0: seven blocks west on 14th Street, I'm offered yet another metaphor.
7: We're like Zipcar. That's like leasing a car.
0: Adam Siegel founded Cove in 2013. With its simple furniture and bright blue walls, the 14th Street location is one of several, including DuPont, Capitol Hill, and as of this month, Columbia Heights. But as Adam is quick to point out, Cove is not a co-working space. We're your neighborhood productive space. Cove is similar to co-working spaces in that it offers social and networking events for members. But unlike those spaces where you pay per month for a drop-in desk, dedicated desk, or like at WeWork, a private office, at Cove you pay per hour and you take whatever seat is available. So in a way it's less like an office and more like a coffee shop. In fact...
8: It's about $2.48
7: to $3 an hour. You price it similar to a latte... So for the price of latte, you can be productive.
0: And that productivity doesn't have to be work-related.
7: Some people come in and read the newspaper on a Saturday. People roll out of bed and come here, like I did.
0: (laughs) That's why Adam hopes to bring Cove to more D.C. neighborhoods, so people won't have to catch a ride to get their productivity on. But until two years ago, that's precisely what residents across the river had to do.
1: I'm Nikki Peel. I'm the managing director of The Hive 2.0, the only co-working space east of the Anacostia River, one for 150,000 people.
0: I recently swung by The Hive 2.0 during a networking event. It's in the lower level of the Anacostia Arts Center on Good Hope Road Southeast and contains private offices and open workspaces, along with lounges, conference rooms, and one feature Nikki says no other co-working space has a washer-dryer.
1: We pretty much have everything, including the dog and the pony.
0: And that goes for the five dozen-plus members, too. The day I visit, I meet a man who helps female farmers in sub-Saharan Africa get access to tractors, a guy who runs a brewed cocoa company with his mom, and this gal.
9: My name is Tanya Yates, and I am a personal trainer for My Fitness First. Um, I also do all-natural health and wellness consultations.
0: Tanya isn't a member of Hive 2.0. She's deciding whether the space might work for her business, both the administrative stuff and the training. Right now, she meets clients at either her home or theirs or a park.
9: The Hive is very unique because it's connected to the Anacostia Art Center, and they do have a wellness collective upstairs. So I am going to see how I can use that space.
0: And that's an interesting thing about co-working in D.C., It's expanding beyond mere office space. You now have people co-working around food at Union Kitchen and Mess Hall or manufacturing at Idea Space. It's also expanding, well, period. Uber offices, for instance, now has four locations, one in D.C., one in Maryland, and two in Virginia. Reston just got its first co-working space, Refraction, this spring. And co-working consultant and Affinity Lab board member Mike LaRosa says the market will keep growing, especially as large corporations downsize and workers are emboldened to strike out on their own.
3: A lot of studies out there say that by 2020, 43 or 44 percent of Americans are going to be freelancers, independent contractors, consultants. A lot of people are out there. They have a steady job. They might not love what they do. They might not even be happy at all, but they're not willing to take that risk. I think the more and more people see others doing it, they'll start jumping on the
5: bandwagon.
0: And when they do, they have their choice of places to go and times to work, be it 9 to 5, 5 to 9, or anything in between. <laughs> Looking for a co-working space near you? We have a map of local office alternatives on our website, MetroConnection.org. One, two, three,
7: four.
10: Can I have just a little more? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten.
0: Our next story in today's 9 to 5 show is about a man and a woman who not only go to work together, they come home together too, as husband and wife. Audrey DuPlessis and Catherine Limperopoulos both work in the brand new Fetal Medicine Institute at Children's National Medical Center in Northwest D.C. He's the institute's director, and she runs a lab dedicated to studying fetal brain development. DuPlessis says most of our knowledge of the fetal brain comes from two things, studying premature babies during their first few weeks or autopsies. But for the past 10 years, Dr. Limperopoulos has led a research team that hopes to use magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to gain a better understanding. Emily Berman visited the lab to learn
11: more about the research. Dr.
0: Catherine Limperopoulos is in her office pointing
9: to images of tiny brains.
11: This is what comes off the scanner. Um, Low-end images, you can see that they're jagged, they're unclear. You certainly cannot appreciate the anatomical boundaries of the brain.
9: In other words, these images are not great. She and her team have developed specialized software to fuse the images together, smooth them out, and accurately predict the brain's size and structure. This computer model is then compared to a control group of more than 240 healthy babies across the country whose mothers volunteer to undergo scans starting in their second trimester. The children are scanned up until preschool to form a normal growth curve. In terms of what exactly Limperopolis is looking for, it's the size of each part of the brain, the way the folds are developing, and whether a certain chemical, lactate,
11: is present. The presence of lactate seems to be a real red flag in the high-risk fetus. The first set of
9: cases she studied
11: were fetuses
9: showing signs of congenital heart disease. A baby with a malformed heart, Limpiopolis explains, will need intervention almost immediately to get enough oxygen into the body
11: these babies are born and they will go in for open heart surgery within within days of life.
9: Brain injury is common for babies born with heart issues and it's frequently blamed on the surgery. But Limparopoulos study asked the question, are these babies normal to begin with? Turns out
11: many are not. What we found was that over 50% of these newborns even before going in for open-heart surgery, were demonstrating neurologic abnormalities and showing evidence for brain injury and brain growth impairment that suggested that some of this injury may in fact be happening even before they're born. Limperopoulos
9: was just about to publish this study nearly six years ago when she was pregnant with her first child. And unexpectedly, her family life began to reflect what she'd been working on. Her husband, Dr. Audrey DuPlessis, remembers
12: it well. I remember the evening when she was getting ready to put the manuscript in the mail on fetuses with congenital heart disease. I remember her being teary-eyed because our first baby had been diagnosed with a suspected congenital heart lesion, I think it was that day or soon before that. And here she was uh, with this new information that all of these kids that she had been studying and that she had now shown um, the impaired brain development in, uh, that all of that might apply to her child.
11: It was a very, very difficult moment. Uh, Not moment, it was a very difficult pregnancy. We just hoped for the best. We really did, and maybe that's not the most scientific response, but it was just hoping for the best and being prepared for the worst. In the end, they were the lucky ones.
9: Anastasia didn't have heart disease at all, and neither do their two other children. But, they say, that experience changed the way they practice medicine. It's terrifying, limperopoulos says, to wait for this sort of test result— As of now, it takes their software programs about an hour to run a full analysis. Her goal is to have the measurements in real time. Duplessis explains that because of this research, in some cases we may be able to go from managing brain injury after a baby is born to preventing the injury from happening in the first place.
12: We want to get beyond life and death and make sure that we can really advance the quality of life of these kids.
9: Limperopolis and her team at Children's are using these techniques to study how other disorders and diseases impact the fetal brain. Right now, they're working on intrauterine growth restriction, which is when babies are smaller than they should be, often due to low oxygen supply. And there are also plans to study the brain changes associated
11: with gestational diabetes and preeclampsia. There's so much that we see coming through our doors And there's so much we see coming through our studies that when I say I feel privileged to have had three healthy children, I feel that every day. And we want to make it better for, you know, for the next family. Being parents, doctors and scientists
9: is hectic, they say, and way beyond the parameters of a nine to five job. But it helps to think that one day their work could change the course of someone's life forever. I'm Emily Berman.
0: After the break, we'll meet Washingtonians who say they've been forced off the police force.
7: If someone is 64 years old and completely healthy, there is no reason that you should stop them from working.
0: And we'll dive into the secret world of bag busting. Some of my friends just
1: call me a professional bag lady. I mean that's my job is to make sure that the bag law's working.
0: It's just ahead as our nine to five edition of Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 885. WAMU
1: News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 885's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're working nine to five with a show all about the gigs and jobs that keep our city running. The people we'll meet next say they've truly loved their careers, and they would still be working them if they hadn't just been given their walking papers. Some members of the Metropolitan Police Department say they've been told they're too old to enforce the law, and therefore
13: they're required to retire. Lauren Ober has the story. Jerome Lucas might as well be called the mayor of Minnesota Avenue. He knows everyone, and just about everyone knows him. He chats with folks on the Strip, he pops into stores to check in, and he even helps old ladies across the street.
10: You got it. You're coming across. Thank you, baby. Uh, It's a crosswalk. You
13: (laughs) That wasn't nice. Lucas patrolled this area for 45 years as a D.C. police officer, That fact is probably not lost on the guy who walks by us and flips Lucas off.
2: I locked him up the end of last year.
13: But Lucas's days of putting people behind bars are over. In June, he was one of 17 MPD officers forced into retirement because of their age. The police department cited a general order from 1977 that said once an officer reaches age 64, he or she has to retire. Until this year, the order had never been enforced. Lucas, a Vietnam veteran and a Purple Heart recipient, had been a member of MPD's Distinguished Honor Guard and served as a training officer until he was let go. Police Chief Kathy Lanier was one of his students. Never been dumped on this
2: bad since Vietnam. But I go in and they tell me, your job is over. I
13: said, what? The move had many an MPD scratching their heads. Just two years ago, the department's longest serving officer retired under his own steam at age 74. Delroy Burton, who is chair of the D.C. Police Union, suggests the forced retirement was related to an issue at the D.C. Fire Department. The fire chief at the time wanted an employee out.
7: And so this is the mechanism they used to do it. And because you can't do something like that unilaterally, it jumped from the fire department to the police department through the deputy mayor's office for public safety. And that's how we ended up in this circumstance.
13: WAMU reached out to Paul Quander, the deputy mayor for public safety and justice, but he referred us to MPD. MPD spokeswoman Gwendolyn Crump wrote in an email to WAMU that MPD retired those officers to bring the workforce into compliance with the department's general orders. She says MPD appreciates the many years of service that these police officers have provided to the city. The police union's Delroy Burton says he can't figure out why the district would want to let go of experienced police officers, especially when there's a shortage of cops.
7: We have a manpower crisis, I would call it right now, with the MPD. We cannot keep the people that we hire. And to take uh, people that want to be here when we can't keep people, I think it was just a bad move. And it sends a terrible message to anyone that's thinking about coming here to work is that Someone who did 45 years provided exceptional service. They were just thrown out like trash.
13: Not only did the officers who were forced out get no warning, but they also have had to go two months without any pay. Last week, the D.C. Police and Firefighters Retirement and Relief Board finally heard the officers' cases, but it will still be 30 to 60 days before they get any money. For Willie Harris, a 17-year veteran of the force, that's too late. Harris joined MPD after years as a corrections officer. He was 47 at the time, which was fine since the department didn't have any age restrictions, or so he thought.
14: If I had been aware of the fact that there was an order standing that I may have been forced out at 64, 65, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have never quit my correction job.
13: We reached Harris by phone at his new home in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Because he wasn't able to finish out his 25 years with MPD, he's not eligible for full retirement benefits. And D.C., where Harris had lived since 1966, is just too expensive for him to survive on the retirement he'll get. So he had to head south.
14: It's a shame. I left here to do better. Now I have to come back here to do better. So it's kind of crazy, ain't it?
13: The part that's most bothersome to the guys is not that they were forced to retire, but that the process felt cold and undignified. The officers say they were herded into the Human Resources Office and given separation packets as if they were getting fired or laid off.
14: It was like so, you know, insensitive. That part hurt me, I think, worse than the actual action of being forced to retire.
13: Rather than summarily dismiss officers older than 64, Delroy Burton says he wishes the department had acted on a case-by-case basis. Both Harris and Lucas are physically and mentally fit, and both wanted to keep working.
7: If someone is 64 years old and completely healthy, there is no reason that you should stop them from working if they can still pass all the requirements of someone that's 24 years old.
13: It's unclear whether MPD will continue to enforce this policy, but Burton says if it does, the district could face a major shortage of cops on the streets. I'm Lauren Ober.
0: We'll turn now from the MPD to another part of city government, the Department of the Environment, where hundreds of people are working to keep Washington, D.C. clean and healthy. But we found one employee whose job involves an intriguing sort of subterfuge, so much so that, well, we can't even tell you her full name. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson witnessed her in action.
15: We meet downtown, not far from the day's target destination, a souvenir shop on 10th Street. Standing on the street corner at lunchtime, Kate, just Kate, she won't let us give you her last name, is wearing a maroon business casual dress and a thin beige shawl. She doesn't stand out, and that is by design. She's working, working at one of the coolest jobs in city government
1: so I'm an undercover inspector.
15: Of course, D.C. has lots of inspectors, but Kate says her undercover gig is pretty unique.
1: I'm basically like a professional secret shopper.
15: Secret or mystery shoppers, in case you're unfamiliar, are those people that retailers pay to shop at their stores to make sure employees are doing everything by the book. The practice has been around for decades, if not longer. But Kate's job only became necessary in January of 2010. That's when D.C. rolled out its so-called bag tax, a first-in-the-nation, five-cent fee on plastic bags. It's aimed at discouraging consumers and businesses from using so many of the bags and reducing the amount of trash in local rivers and streams.
1: My job is to go and ensure that businesses are charging the fee consistently and that they're also distributing compliant bags.
15: A do-gooder with a hidden identity. Sound familiar? Batman? Superwoman? Could Kate be the hero for tough times like ours?
1: Uh, no, I've never thought of it that way.
15: (laughs) Well, before we get carried away, and we will get carried away, let's go over how Kate's sting operations actually work. She walks into any of the more than 5,000 establishments subject to the law, posing as just another consumer, and purchases something, making sure to ask the cashier For a bag. Not exactly mission impossible, but we're still going to play the music. We walk up the stairs to that 10th Street souvenir shop. I start to look around, doing my best to play the part of a curious shopper. But Kate, with the kind of confidence that only comes from experience, cuts right to the chase, grabbing a granola bar. The cashier reaches back to a stash of plastic bags hanging on the wall behind him, flashing a friendly and unsuspecting smile. I can barely contain my excitement, but before I can blow our cover, Kate delivers the coup de grace.
16: Can I get
1: a
11: receipt, please?
15: Um, Did they charge you?
1: Let's see. So I had asked for a bag. Let's see. You did not.
15: If you're expecting some sort of confrontation, that's not what Kate's job is about. Plus, that would blow her cover.
1: They never know that I just purchased something from their store, so I don't actually confront them. Everything is actually done through the mail. And then I usually get a call from the business once they've received um, their enforcement action. She's
15: even careful about how she pays at the store she's inspecting.
1: There's no government credit card. I use my own money and then I get reimbursed.
15: Kate says her predecessor in the job came up with the scheme and even came up with a way to make sure all those little food purchases made during the undercover operations do some good on their own.
1: Whatever I purchase, it's usually a non-perishable good. We then donate to senior centers across the city. So every month or two, once we've gathered up enough goods from our inspections, I drive it over to a senior center um, and seniors across the city get a bunch of goodies from the inspections. After an initial
15: warning, repeat offenders get hit with a $100 fine, an amount that doubles after each additional violation, with $800 being the maximum. The fees are raising about $2 million a year. That's money that goes towards stream restoration and environmental education, although the amount has come under fire from some anti-tax and government spending watchdog groups. But the city has added quite a few new grocery stores in recent years and is currently gaining about 1,000 new residents each month. So Kate says the fact that fine revenue is staying level is actually a sign that people are starting to forego the plastic. That trend is also reflected in the fact that stream cleanup volunteers are reporting a 60 percent reduction in the amount of plastic bags found in the water.
1: And the point of the law is never to raise money. The point has always been behavior change and getting people to use fewer disposable bags and turn to reusable bags. But we think it's great that, you know, despite all this growth in the city, new businesses, people aren't using more bags, they're actually using fewer bags.
15: So you are really, really dedicated to this job. But it really it's hot outside, and I think you should probably take off the pregnancy disguise.
1: (laughs) That's tough. I don't think so. I'm actually pregnant.
15: (laughs) Seven months pregnant, in fact, with twins. Now that is dedication. This story, by the way, will self-destruct in five seconds. You'll still be able to find it on the web. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
0: And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week, on door to door, we'll visit Radnor Fort Myer Heights in Arlington, Virginia, and the Forest Hills neighborhood of Northwest DC.
5: My name is Kenneth Robinson. I'm 69 years old, and I live in the Radnor Fort Myer Heights neighborhood in Arlington. Radnor Fort Myer Heights is basically shaped like a pie slice. At the tip is Iwo Jima. Run up to one corner and you have the courthouse. Run down towards Iwo Jima and you have Roslyn. Probably around 15,000 people live in this immediate area and that population is going up chiefly because the size of the apartment buildings is going up. This area is the only part of Arlington that I know of where You have such a mix of income levels and demographics and age. The Civic Association sponsors a summer fiesta and then we have a winter party and we get maybe 250, 300 children. My
16: name is Mary Beth Ray, and I live in Forest Hills, right near Sipston Valley Park. I am between Rock Creek Park and Connecticut Avenue, and north of the zoo and south of Chevy Chase. Van Ness and Forest Hills were really originally a quarry about 2,000 years ago. There's archeological evidence showing that the Native American community quarried stones there. And of course, you can still see the old mill today, which is made of some of that local stone. We have some great traditions. Our flea market, that's just a great time for the community to come out and buy some fresh fruits and vegetables, support our local merchants, and visit with neighbors. We moved to Forest Hills about 14 years ago, and I think one of the things that I'm really happy to see in our neighborhood is that people seem to be coming out of their homes more. People seem more eager to engage with their neighbors
0: and more eager to engage with the beautiful nature that surrounds us. We heard from Mary Beth Ray in Forest Hills and Kenneth Robinson in radnor Fort Meyer Heights. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at WAMU.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU metro. In a minute...
3: I felt jealous that my mom didn't know how to make these cupcakes and brownies, so I took it upon myself to learn.
0: A Jordanian opens an American bakery in the Middle East. We'll visit his new American outpost here in D.C. And we'll hit the streets with some of Washington's buskers. It's just a wonderful thing just to see that we can bring joy to the city. That and more is coming your way as we go 9 to 5 here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And with Labor Day recently behind us, this week we're getting down to business with a show we're calling 9 to 5. And our next story takes place in D.C.'s Adams Morgan neighborhood.
3: We've got cookies, chocolate chip, oatmeal, peanut butter, Nutella, Snickerdoodles, and cappuccino.
0: Where a 37-year-old entrepreneur is hoping for a very sweet deal with his newest venture.
3: We've got also different bars. Today we have lemon bars, brownies, and raspberry cream cheese strudel bars.
0: Are there certain things here that we wouldn't see in your other stores overseas um, because of availability or whatnot? Uh,
3: ingredients, yeah, definitely. So anything with, like, blueberries in it or raspberries, they're very expensive to get in the Middle
0: East. And Fadi Jabber should know. He has two bakeries in the Middle East, one in Beirut, Lebanon, and another in Amman, Jordan. Sugar Daddy's, as he calls them, specializes in simple, classic American desserts, like cookies and bars, of course, but also pies, cheesecakes, more than a dozen flavors of cupcakes, and a number of old-fashioned layer cakes.
3: People would come in and be like, what's red velvet? That's so interesting. And, you know, I would flip the cake around and show them the way it was red on the inside, and they're like, oh my god, I definitely want to try that.
0: But when Jobber opened his first American outpost here on 18th Street, he immediately learned he might not be able to have his cake and eat it, too. He launched on December 29th, and within three days of opening, he got a cease and desist order from another Sugar Daddy's Bakery in Columbus, Ohio. When he called up some intellectual property lawyers, they were like, look, you do have somewhat of a case, but it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars.
3: And in the end, you may not win. So it's just whether you are willing to take that risk and whether you have deep enough pockets to do so. We suspect from this conversation that you don't.
0: (laughs) And truth was, he didn't. So in May, he changed the bakery's name to the Cake Room, which he now feels better represents the bright and homey two-story space with its white wainscoting, cushy sofa and window seats, and red plaid walls.
3: I really love the Provençal, like French, like shabby chic type of look, but I also like an Americana style home. You know, with the Hardwood floors and the and the staircase and pictures cluttered along the walls as you go up. There's just such a warm and inviting feel about both of those concepts, and I just try to fuse them. I'm sort of a mishmash of identities myself, having lived in the Middle East, but with an American education. So I really wanted that to be a reflection of my life as well.
0: And I guess now would be a good time to talk about that life Jabber's parents are Palestinian, but became citizens of Jordan in the late 1940s. Jabber and his two brothers started school in Saudi Arabia, where their dad got a job with an American oil company.
3: So we all grew up on this American compound, and that was my first exposure to American desserts because all my classmates were American kids, like expats whose parents worked for this oil company. So their mothers would always bring cupcakes into school, and I felt jealous that My mom didn't know how to make these cupcakes and
0: brownies. So Jabber began whipping up his own cupcakes and brownies with a little help from Betty Crocker and Duncan Hines. He continued baking in the U.S. where he attended high school and college, the College of William and Mary in Virginia, actually. Then he returned to Saudi Arabia to do brand managing for Unilever. Was that fun?
3: No. (laughs) I didn't really enjoy the corporate world and was itching to get out and do my own thing. So I told my dad that one day I'd come back to Jordan and uh, open my own business. And he said, well, as soon as you come up with an idea, let me know and I'd be one of your first investors. I'd love for one of my children to come back, you know, after having an empty nest for so long.
0: By now, Jobber's cake mix experiments had evolved to baking from scratch. These are like American-style desserts you were making. Yeah,
3: so a lot of my friends had bought me like cookbooks and so I'd practice and every weekend I'd make a different dessert and then I'd bring it to work the next day and people loved it and they were like, you should open a bakery.
0: So at age 29, Jobber quit his Unilever gig and started culinary school in New York City. There was just one problem.
3: My dad didn't support... The idea so much, so I funded that from my savings. But
0: after Fadi Jabber completed his program, and after he presented a very detailed business plan to his father, who'd retired in Jordan...
3: He eventually came around, and he was one of my first investors, him and my brother.
0: When the first shop opened in Amman in 2007, a number of people asked if they could franchise the concept.
3: Because it was the first of its kind in the Middle East, there were no other shops that were selling cupcakes.
0: He had a fallout with the investors who franchised a bakery in Dubai.
3: But the Beirut shop is still alive and kicking, and the Jordan shop, of course, has been super successful.
0: Not that he didn't face his share of skeptics at first... After all, delicate, intricate European pastries were all the rage at the time in Jordan. So take, for instance, the popular restaurateur he cold called for advice.
3: He was like, bring me a bunch of desserts that you plan to sell. I'd really like to have my wife taste them and and get her opinion.
0: What exactly did you bring? Do you remember?
3: I brought a chocolate fudge cake. I think I brought like a carrot cake, a yellow cake, and then some cupcakes. And his wife was like, I don't think this is going to work. I know the society ladies in Jordan, and they're going to want those elaborately decorated cakes. This just looks too homemade.
0: But talk about eating your words. Before long, those same society ladies were queuing out Jobber's door. Now, you may be wondering how an American-style bakery might fare in the Middle East, given the global political situation. But Jobber says he's happy about how that cookie's crumbled, too.
3: When it comes to food... I think people overlook the the political situation, and that's great. But the other great thing about my business is, though it's based on an American concept, it started by a Jordanian. And I think a lot of people really appreciated that.
0: What's funny, he says, is one of his biggest challenges actually came when he decided to open an American-style bakery in America.
3: We are kind of bringing pasta to the Italians. Like, I remember when I first started telling people in DC that I was going to open my bakery here, even ones that really love my shop and had tried to enjoy it, and they're like, oh, just what DC needs another cupcake shop.
0: But once again, Fadi Jobber charged ahead. He says business at the Cake Room is picking up, and he has high hopes for the future. He's been splitting his time between D.C. and Jordan and says being in the U.S. definitely has its perks, especially as it relates to that now world-famous red velvet cake.
3: The Jordanian government has banned red food color, so we cannot find it on supermarket shelves. None of our suppliers are able to source it for us. So I went back home in July and I took back a whole case of red food color that I ordered from one of my now purveyors. So my employees there were just... Completely speechless. Like, oh my god, this will last us for years. (laughs) So there's different challenges in each country, but it's never a dull moment, as they say.
0: For more information on Sugar daddies and The Cake Room, and to hear Fatty Jabber give an audio tour of some of the sweets and treats at the latter, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
13: If I knew you were coming out of baked a cake, baked a cake, baked a cake. If I knew you were coming out of baked a cake, how'd you do, how'd you do, how'd you do?
0: We turn now from baking to buses. Metrobus prides itself on providing more than 400,000 trips every weekday and serving more than 11,000 bus stops in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. The fleet currently boasts about 1,500 buses operating on more than 320 routes. And one of them is driven by a man who doesn't just take his passengers to and fro. He lifts their spirits. But as Matthew Schwartz tells us in this encore airing of one of our favorite stories from the spring, Derek Perry's message of positivity wasn't exactly easy in the coming.
6: It's 7 o'clock on a Friday morning, and sleepy passengers are trickling onto the B-8 bus in northeast Washington. Riders who have never experienced operator Derek Perry before have no idea what's about to happen.
10: Right, ladies and gentlemen, this year is going to be year. Everybody on this bus is. Gotta stay focused though. Stay focused and stay
6: positive. Right. Perry's not your average bus driver. He's only been operating the bus a couple of years, but he already has a bit of a cult following. As the bus fills up, Perry draws on the crowd's energy.
10: Today is that day we've been waiting all week for you all. All week. You all enjoy. It. This is our day today. That's right. Carl. Yeah. And you all enjoy it.
14: That's Have right, a safe, safe, good weekend. Once you've had the Operator Perry experience, you're never gonna forget it.
6: Perry's fans come from all walks of life. Take Mark Funkhauser, who got the Perry experience when Perry drove the 43 last
14: year. I was mayor of Kansas City from uh, May of 2007 to May of 2011 in all my life. I have never seen a bus driver like Operator Perry. I mean, you can have a nice bus driver, you can have a polite bus driver, but how often do you have a bus driver tell you, I love you?
6: Perry tailors his message to the crowd. This particular morning, he's addressing an audience of students on their way to school.
10: If a school, stay focused in school, y'all. You want to try to go to college? College is unbelievable. You're going to love it. I guarantee you you're going to love it. You got to get them grades up.
6: Perry never went to college. He gives the students advice he wishes he had followed when he was their age.
10: You got people around you bringing negativity into your life. You're going to have to distance yourself from them. Because misery loves company. And it can't bring you down. got to stay focused. Yeah, this is going to be a good day
6: today. Real good day. Facing negativity is something Operator Perry knows far too much about. It all began, he says, when he was growing up in southeast D.C. and showing promise as a football player.
2: A lot of guys from the streets would give me money when I score uh, touchdowns, make good plays, and so... I started looking up to the hustlers as a role model. And I wanted to dress like them, beautiful women. I wanted to have them. They have, you know, uh, wads of money. And so that just, it just caught my eye. And one thing led to another thing. Um, I got into the streets selling drugs. Um, I did time.
6: Twelve years behind bars when all was said and done. But at age 40, he decided he was tired of what he calls a no-ending road.
2: I'm not ashamed to say. I'm not ashamed. A lot of people won't even tell you um, that they used to get high, that they were locked up, that they've been shot. I don't have no problem, because I know where I'm at now, and I'm at so much peace. I'm at so much peace now.
6: Perry believes he was saved for a reason. Now, he says, it's his mission to change other people's lives for the better.
2: That's why I can get across to the young adults now, because I've been where they are, and I can see the struggle that they have in front of them. And when I can tell them where I came from and where I'm at now, it helps out a whole lot when I talk to them. You just you can't give up on them. You never know what you might say to them might spark them. Kids
6: aren't the only ones who find inspiration in Perry's words. Marine biologist David Guggenheim was on Perry's route once on an August trip to the dentist. You know, there's a difference between someone being courteous and friendly and somebody really exuding warmth from the heart. I think we, we know the difference when we see it. And he was all in. Eight months later, I'm still, I'm still feeling it.
10: I want to thank y'all for riding with me this morning. Thank you. You all don't know it, but you all make my mornings every day. And I appreciate it.
6: As groups of passengers arrive at their destinations, Perry delivers one last message to get them through whatever the day may hold.
10: Listen to me. If nobody told you they love you this morning, Operator Perry loves you all. I got y'all.
6: And for Perry, it's not just idle talk.
2: It pleases me to see other people happy and to know what I'm doing to them. With this job, I love this job so much. It's almost like I have to pinch myself. It's almost like, do I really get paid for this? They can even pay me half of what I'm getting, and I would still
0: love it.
6: Don't tell them (laughs) that. I'm Matthew Schwartz.
0: Want to see operator Perry in action? We have a video of him on our website, metroconnection.org. We'll end today's show on a musical note with a story about some workers in Washington you've no doubt seen and heard. Buskers, or street musicians, can be found all over the city, performing outside office buildings or bustling metro stations. Over the past few weeks, WAMU's Jared Walker has been pounding the pavement to capture the sounds of D.C.'s buskers, and he brings us this audio postcard. Is this the red line train come
1: off, uh, The next station is c
14: Freddie Dunn at the UDC Metro Station, trumpet and flugelhorn. As a musician, I mean, I'm a musician full time, and this is one of the things I do to to make sure that the rent and the lights stay on. You know, I mean, I, I do a bunch of things. I teach, I gig, and I do you know street shows, busking, um, some studio work, that sort of thing. Here, you meet people, you get to kind of see what works for an audience, you know, see which people respond to what songs or what style of playing. Almost like research for a musician, you know. When I was in school, I went to college and we studied the history of of classical European music, and they talked about the Truvairs in France and the Troubadours in in Italy and how they kind of did movable performances. Same thing, so I think there's a rich history of it.
8: My name is Vasily Frankos and I am playing the viola today. One time um, I was playing under the station down at Metro Center and no warning, I just was arrested. You know, about six guys surrounded me and arrested me. and. They took me to four different locations through the night uh, for 18 hours straight. The judge, of course, threw it out immediately. Yeah, so I mean, getting arrested, I guess, affected my searching for spots that were definitely (laughs) legal. So the spot I'm in right now, I'm happy to say, is completely legal. I suppose if the building over here didn't like me, they could have me kicked out or whatever, but the security guard from over there just tipped me, so I'm pretty sure that They're happy with me. Been playing here for like five years.
6: My name is Bill Banks. And I'm with the brass connection band. The money's good, but to have somebody, you know, you know, I've seen a couple of people, they get out of wheelchairs and start dancing. You know, we had a guy who was blind, he put a stick down, start dancing, you know, it's just a lot of things, you know, going on out here. It's just it's beautiful. And to see that and tell people that you change their day, it's just a wonderful thing just to see that we can bring joy to the
0: city or wherever we go was trumpet and flugelhorn player Freddie Dunn, viola player Vasily Francos, and the Brass Connection band's Bill Banks sharing their stories with WAMU's Jared Walker. Do you have a favorite D.C. street musician? Send us a note and tell us what they add to the city's scene. Or even better, zip us a photo or video. We're at metro at WAMU.org, or you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMUMetro. Metro. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, Lauren Ober, and Jared Walker, along with reporter Matthew Schwartz. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Julie Alderman. This week's door-to-door producer is Kristen Sorensen. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, MetroConnection.org. Just click This Week on Metro Connection or subscribe to our podcast. You can also find that on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week with a show we're calling Below the Surface. We'll search for elusive freshwater sharks in the Potomac River. We'll explore the hidden struggles of compulsive hoarders. And we'll visit a Virginia site whose storied history lies hundreds of feet underground. Shaco
6: Bottom has been virtually erased.
0: It takes real imagination
6: to understand what happened there 150-some years ago
0: and what could happen there. I'm Rebecca Scheer and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.